You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Stephen Moore. He is an author. He is an historian. He's written several books on World War II also has written several books on Texas history, which is obviously rich and fascinating in its own right. Uh, His new book is called Patton's Payback, The Battle of El Guitar and General Patton's Rise to Glory. He's come on the Leaders and Legends podcast to discuss General Patton's coming out party, if that's the right way to say it, in North Africa, and also maybe the general's career overall. Mr. Moore, thank you very much for your time this Hey, Robert. uh, Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I should note that one of our sponsors is McAllister Machinery, as I just mentioned, and the recently deceased patriarch of McAllister Machinery, who passed away at age 101 just a couple of years ago. His name is P.E. McAllister. His first name is Pershing. And he landed in North Africa in November of 1942. P.E., I love you. I miss you. You're the most amazing man I ever met. And I sure wish you were around to, to hear this podcast because I know you would enjoy it. I asked him often about his time in North, North Africa and what his experience was like. And he said, you just stood around all the damn time. But they, <laughs> That's kind of all you did. Uh, your book's about a lot more than that. It's about action and and General Patton and how the United States and, and the allies, I guess I should say, with Great Britain uh, swept the Germans away from North Africa. Let me start, though, by kind of establishing a frame of reference. If you asked anyone 
say, ask an American about Patton, the first thing that comes to mind is the movie. Right. So what did what do you think of the movie and and how do you think it the movie itself has shaped our perception of Patton, not only in, in, in the popular sense, but also among academic historians? Yeah, Patton, you know, whether it's in the movies or in print, <clears throat> excuse me, he's received plenty of attention and he's he's a guy that's either universally loved or universally hated, depending on who you talk to. Uh, he was passionate. He was fiery. He was irreverent. He was profane. You know, he knew how to get in front of people and motivate men, but oftentimes the tactics he used to do so were not very popular, especially if you're on the receiving end of one of his tirades. And some of them, uh, you know, drew a lot of criticisms from higher brass of the way he handled, you know, junior soldiers. But in the end, you know, especially as we look in North Africa, he had a winning way about him of motivating men that needed motivation, but uh, certainly very differing opinions on George Patton. You know, we had a basketball coach here in Indiana who uh, <laughs> was often likened to General Patton. But in the movie, he comes across as almost a maniac in some ways. But is that too simplistic? He's obviously a genius. He was obviously a motivator. He obviously had immense personal bravery. How did if if you were if you had written your book, had not seen the movie and then watched the movie, how different would they be? You know, it's it's a matter of perspective. A lot of times I would think, you know, he may have looked like a maniac or a, a crazy person to certain soldiers that witnessed him in short bursts. But behind the scenes, you know, he had his deep thoughts. He kept a diary every day. He, he thought out what was coming ahead. He talked to people, took input. Now, he acted as he chose to act. And in, in some cases, he would say, literally go forward and get more officers killed, move them out to the front lines until I see a few bodies out there in, in the form of officers to show your leadership. So yeah, that's going to be interpreted as a maniac by some people, but he had his means for doing so. And he was taking the reins from some, you know, some, from some pretty inept leadership, a guy that commanded from a hundred miles in the back of the troops. So he was about going forward, being seen, making his point. And sometimes he was in your face screaming and cursing you to make his point. So there's definitely, you know, translated to movies that may be more of what you see. Some of it's fair. Some of it's maybe a little Hollywood, a little on the far end, but he had a way of making points that was not well liked by a lot of folks. You know, I think there's even a line in the movie where one of his aides says, you know, they don't know when you're joking and when you're serious and, George C. Scott replies, it's not important for them to know. It's only important for me to know. That's right. He was a fan of movies. He liked a lot of lines and he used some one-liners here and there, but he would make his point. He would be told by them, that's the front lines. You can't go past here. Well, that just meant he was going to get his command car and have them drive through a minefield to make his point and uh, wearing his stars. You know, at the time he had three stars, eventually got the four stars on his helmet, on his jacket, on his command vehicles. It was, you know, pretty much like, you know, take a shot at me, damn it, if you want to. I'm here. Take your best shot. Uh, he was pretty brash. 
And one of the things that's interesting, and I kind of I compare him to Otto von Bismarck. There's actually a recording of Otto von Bismarck's voice, and he was a bit, very big man, six four, over you know two hundred pounds, and he had this very high reedy voice. And if you go on YouTube and look up clips of Patton speaking. It's almost a shrieky, shrill voice. You would think that he would sound, you know, like the the voice of God in the Ten Commandments, but instead, it's almost like Minnie Mouse. Uh, was he conscious of that? I mean, did he did people make fun of him about it or anything like that? Because I just think it's an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, they learned pretty quick not to, you know, laugh around him or talk about him in a profane way nearby. But yeah, he had a especially when he was in a tirade, a, a kind of a high pitch to his voice that would go to another octave. And it was almost comical to some people of a man that was just this fiery and passionate and brimstone. And he's got this little squeaky voice. So it just didn't seem to fit his persona. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit, please, about his early career. Uh, he was he was destined in many ways for a military career. It's clearly where he had uh, set his dreams and goals. How did the his career, let's say, let's say up to World War One. How did that shape him? How did that get him where he ended up being? Yeah, he obviously uh, had a, a background in tanks before he, you know, took command in, in North Africa. But before that, you know, he was a representative of the Army in the 1912 Olympics. He was a master swordsman and an instructor in swords. Uh, he kind of a varied man, but, you know, always a fighter, always passionate. Uh, long before any of this, he was known for pursuing Pancho Villa through Mexico and long story of that and some of the battles he fought there. Uh, he was decorated with this Distinguished Service Cross for his valor in World War I. So this, this is a career military man who had quite the career long before World War II was on the doorsteps for America. He, like a lot of World War II generals, he found a a patron and a mentor in general of the armies, John J. Pershing. How did that connection happen and how did it help Patton's career? Yeah, he had a, a long history going back with Pershing. I believe, if I recall right, that was going back to the Pancho Villa days where they, those guys were connected there and they go back, you know, pre-World War One and World War One era. Some of those good connections were fortuitous for him, you know, down the road. Uh, Eisenhower was another uh, ally of his at most times, but then just the opposite. He, he had guys that he had no problem locking horns with and even dismissing at times if he needed to. But uh, Pershing was one that helped his career in the early days for sure. How much was General Patton's career aided by political influence and friends in high places? You know, he, he had definitely some help there, uh, but when he was put into the position of leadership, it became, you know, him and his ways to move forward and do what he did. Uh, he got to where he got, but once he was there, he didn't necessarily follow the chain of command. He had a, a British superior, and even though he was supposed to report to him and follow his directive, at times, Patton would step a little further out of bounds than he should have. But... A lot of generals, you'll learn over the years, they had somebody in a high place that helped them get to their position. But once he got there, 
that helped him. You know, he got in trouble. He managed to get his command back. But of course, we're talking post North Africa and some of those troubles. But uh, I think a lot of good leaders like him can thank a few people in their background for helping them along the way. General Marshall famously had his little notebook where he wrote down names of junior officers who he think or thought could rise in the ranks and and be commanders. Eisenhower was was famously on that list in that notebook. You mentioned just a few minutes ago about tank warfare, and we associate General Patton with with armor. How accurate is this? And, and what exactly was Patton's influence and how did he make his mark when it came to tank warfare? Because it was so new in coming out of World War One. He was pretty bold. I mean, he, he would, as he took command uh, around March 6th of 1943, <clears throat> excuse me, he would visit the troops on the front line. He would literally look at the positions. He would look at where the tankers were positioned. He would look at where the artillery was positioned. He was not one about taking up a defensive position. And at times he told them what to do. And if they didn't follow that to his T, you know, he was pretty critical of them after the fact. You know, you, you got a lot of tank destroyers blown away because you didn't listen to what I told you to do. But he wanted them to go in directly, you know, attack and, and be on the offensive versus waiting for them to come after him. Perhaps not as much as it used to, because I know Rick Atkinson has written about this as well. But you have the Pacific, the, the battles on the islands, you know, the naval battles, Philippine Sea, Midway, the list goes on. The invasion of Europe, the famous Normandy invasion. Does, does the North African or did the North African campaign receive kind of a short shrift by historians or maybe in the popular mind? It just wasn't as, I hate to say sexy, but I can't think of another word uh, compared to some of the other theaters and, and places of combat. Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, Atkinson certainly was the historian to bring that to the forefront with a brilliant book and, and of course, his entire series. But yeah, the desert warfare, North Africa, so far removed from the common understanding of most people in the 1940s or, you know, even today to some extent. But the implications of, of taking some ground there and having an allied base within striking distance of European countries was tremendous. So the Allies knew what was at stake there. But uh, going up against the Germans, this was a whole new thing. By the time we get to Normandy and D-Day, yeah, it's like you said, a lot sexier. There's plenty of movies about it, tons of books about it, but comparatively few books, uh, you know, by, by the just the volume on North Africa and Tunisia and some of those battles. But the men that fought there, what they learned, what they experienced, how they were kind of whipped and demoralized and how they learned under men like Patton and Bradley by the time they got to Sicily and Italy and got to Normandy. You know, there was a lot of benefit from what we learned in North Africa, certainly. There was a bit of an argument and it endured really for the first maybe two thirds of the war among allied high commanders and allied political leaders in the sense that men like Marshall wanted to invade France as soon as possible. And men like Churchill and several of the, the higher ranking um, British commanders were like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Like you're going to get absolutely slaughtered and that the United States wanted to take a more direct approach 
towards defeating Nazi Germany, in part because Stalin was yelling and screaming that he that he wanted a more direct approach to relieve the pressure off him. And and the British eventually won the argument, I think it's fair to say, but they advocated for a, a peripheral strategy. How did North Africa play into this overall sort of grand strategic argument? Yeah. And, you know, the way it worked out, obviously it worked out pretty well for the allies, but it, it was not a quick fight. I mean, going ashore in November of 42, we're all the way to May of 43 before that campaign is decided and the Germans have been pushed to the shores of Tunisia. But that established foothold there, you know, gave us a, a key place. You know, we had England, you know, of course, to launch the ships and amphibious for Normandy. But this area of North Africa was key. It, it was a stepping stone. And, you know, with any kind of campaigning going on and the strategies in the back war rooms, there's a lot of what ifs and should we go this place first or that place first. But I think North Africa proved to be a, a key place. Again, if, if nothing else, a learning ground, a training ground for us, armored warfare, uh, looking at new special forces groups such as Darby's Rangers, you know, the first of their type, the hit and run raid tactics, a lot of things established, tested, tried, some failed, some did well. But by the time we get ashore at Normandy, I think we're a little better prepared. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking to author <laughs> Stephen Moore. We're discussing his new book, Patton's Payback, The Battle of El Guitar and General Patton's Rise to Glory. What caused you to write this particular book? I tried to count how many books that you've actually written. Are we in? We're in double digits for sure. Uh, did you get the sense this is this hadn't been covered, and you wanted to to bring it to the forefront, or was it something you've been studying for a long time? Yes, it's, it's interesting the way some of these books work out. A lot of times, I've got a topic I'm really passionate about and working on, and I've got a you know, great editor in Brent Howard with with Dutton and Penguin Books. And uh, this was one that actually he tossed out to me. A lot of times we go back and forth on some ideas I've got or some topics. And he just kind of said, hey, you know what? I think something on Patton and how, you know, he really got started in North Africa. There's been a few books, you know, Atkinson and a couple others have done some things on that. But he said, I think your style, the way you go about it, it would be something to dig in and really get after. And to be honest, uh, I learned a lot. You know, this a lot of times I'll dig into a topic and I don't know a whole lot about it, but I start with trying to find the men, the veterans who are still living and learn what they experienced, how they thought, what they endured. And then, of course, dig into the books, the primary military documents and learn everything I can there. I kind of had the same thing with the army book I did on the Green Berets at Vietnam, uh, Mac B. Sog, when I did that book. I interviewed more than 100 men from a brigadier general down to, you know, the lowliest technician going into the field with the recon teams. And it was all classified. So it was learning as much as you can going into it. Uh, to answer your question on the books, yeah, I've done a few. Uh, this, I believe, is number 22. Uh, done a few with the Army, but I've done a lot with Texas history and with uh, the Navy, uh, a lot of aviation books and submarine books. But this was a lot of learning for me. And for me, it proved fascinating. I try to find characters I can really sink my teeth into and find interesting and then try to 
paint a picture of them through the campaign instead of just all military tactics, you know. And that's one of you've anticipated a question I'm going to ask here in just a little bit on the podcast, but you mentioned you learned a lot. So you've written these books. You're obviously an accomplished, best-selling historian. What was your frame of reference going into, into researching and writing it? Was it just the movie? Was it like, okay, I've read Atkinson's book. Um, and then how did you piece it all together? Each one kind of comes together in a different fashion, but, you know, having seen Patton and, and of course, Atkinson's book, um, there's another one on uh, El Guitar I'd, I'd read, you know, I've kind of had my head wrapped around it to a small degree, but it's really digging in and finding out, you know, how did they train? How did they learn? And uh, I made one of the sets of characters, Darby's Rangers in this book. So I really dug in. I tried to find all the men I could. Uh, I found a few still living. In fact, one I found, uh, Lester Cook, was the last original member of the 1942 first roster. Uh, he just passed away about a year or so ago. But, you know, how did you train? How did you volunteer? How did you get picked? How did you do these night commando raids? So let's talk about all that. That's, you know, digging into the fine detail beyond just the, the big battlefield picture. Uh, that's that's what gets me going. Of course, there, there's a framework or a skeleton, if you will. You know, you've got a, you know, Fred and Dahl being relieved of power. You've got uh, Kasserin Pass and a few other debacles. Patton being brought in, him taking command, trying to whip the troops into shape, and then figuring out how and where do I end this thing? You know, going in, I don't have a clue. I don't know where this book's going to end. <laughs> so I'd live it and learn it as I dig into it deeper and deeper. Is it, how would you... Japan invade Japan attacks Pearl Harbor in December of 41. The Americans land in North Africa, I believe, in November of 42. So almost a year later. But that that doesn't mean that the United States Army was of which, you know, I have to say I was uh, a part of 30 some years ago. And my son, uh, Joshua, who did ended up being 11 Bravo, did two tours in Afghanistan um, Hats off to both of you guys for your service. Well, God love God love Joshua. He he volunteered to be a combat infantryman post nine eleven. That's mm. that's a great deal more brave than, than anything that I ever did. <laughs> uh, but it's it's it would be not an exaggeration to say the American army was green heading into the North African campaign. But but just saying that doesn't, I think, do justice to just how green they were. What was the state of the American army as they headed into the Battle of El Guitar in, in the months prior? Yeah, absolutely. This was something very different than we'd ever experienced. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, Pearl Harbor attack, and then we've got some Pacific campaigns and the Battle of Midway. And then the first real island campaign was Guadalcanal, where you've got troops going ashore amphibious fashion and fighting, you know, beachhead and jungle warfare and, and learning all new tactics against Japanese forces. But us going into North Africa, this is the first time against the Germans for us and, and really you know, the Italians and, and that kind of fighting. We spent a good deal of uh, 42 in training, a lot of desert training, uh, parts of California, Arizona, 
you know, we had some of the military maneuvers down in the swamps of Louisiana, armored divisions and infantry trying to learn how to work in cohesive fashion, dealing with dust and heat and lack of water and all that stuff. But by the time you go ashore in North Africa and push your way toward Tunisia, it's a, it's a completely different experience than what our military is used to. So a good bit of learning as best they could stateside, but then on the job training, if you will, once you get ashore. <laughs> so let's take it from the other side. Um, they're facing, we could talk about the Italians in a minute, but they're facing a German army uh, composed at least in part by veterans of the Poland campaign in September of 39, the invasion of the West in May of 1940. There had been some campaigns in the Balkans and in Greece. So the Germans, by this time, their army was in substantially different shape, just in terms of experience, than their American counterparts. Tell us a little bit about the German army and its commanders as we head into this battle. Yeah, of course, probably the most famous is the desert Fox. You got, you know, field marshal Erwin Rommel, who's been fighting the British and the desert warfare has been going on for some time. And the Germans, you know, have certainly learned quite a bit and experienced quite a bit in their battles and improved and honed on their tactics of how to attack and what to do. So as we get past, uh, you know, the beachheads and, and North Africa and the landings and Casablanca and all that, you roll into early 43, Germans have got the upper hand on what they're doing. And, you know, the American army is not well prepared in our first encounters. You know, ironically, there, there's battles at Kasserin Pass and Fade Pass where Rommel's involved and he wants to see this all the way through the end, this, this campaign. But at the point... Uh, about the time Patton's coming in, uh, within a few weeks there, Rommel was, you know, called back to, to Germany. And, you know, you've got his predecessor, his successor that comes in and takes over, von Arnhem, and he sees the campaign through. Uh, you know, the Germans are very well prepared in tactics, but toward the end of the campaign, they're struggling. Food, supplies, fuel, it's just a war of attrition for them. It's such a vast theater, this continent of desert and wadis and, and washes and mountains and rocks that uh, th those men are suffering greatly by the time that we began capturing them toward the tail end of the campaign. But they certainly went in with a lot more preparation and many more months of battle experience than the Americans did. I should we should also mention the the Germans were uh, uh, attempting to eat an elephant known as the Soviet Union. And that was besides probably the biggest debacle of the war, unless you want to, there's a new book out on, on how Hitler's, uh, how the war was over as soon as Hitler declared war on the United States. Uh, but leaving that topic aside for a little bit, there was a part, there's a chapter in your book or a passage in your book where the British, some British troops are captured. Um, they're not allowed to be executed, but the, but the British are just appalled at the conditions in which the Germans are existing, how how near the end of its of its operational and logistical rope was the Africa Corps as Patton comes to command? 
I think it stretched on longer than their supply chain was able to to you know keep the troops going. You know, some of the allies that were captured, as you mentioned, they're looking at these guys you know, eating beans and and soup and things like that. And there's not a lot of good food. There's not a lot of you know liquids or fuel or anything else to supply these tankers. And they're shocked. You know, if they can send the word back, you know, move forward, keep pressing ahead, we can knock these guys out. And of course, as you know, toward the end of the campaign, at the very end. They're, they're surrendering by the hundreds of thousands because they, they don't have the supply line to carry on. Well, is it is it the movie, the uh, Battle of the Bulge, I think, that the where Robert Shaw is yelling and screaming about the end of the war and how the Germans are running out of food and they had captured an American supply depot and there were like birthday cakes there <laughs> and Shaw is screaming, we can't feed our own men. And the Americans are sending over cake. <laughs> just- yeah. So some of the Germans that were captured are just stunned, you know, the cigarettes and all kinds of, you know, coffee and, and just things they hadn't seen in, in weeks or months, you know, they're shocked at the, you know, the way the Americans are living like hogs compared to some of their troops. <laughs> well, not only from just the, the, the physical deprivation, how did that affect morale? You mentioned they were surrendering in droves. I mean, at a certain point, did it just say, look, why are we, why am I dying for, for, for Hitler? And we're fighting a group of people and we're starving to death and we're making tea with like leaves, not tea leaves, but leaves. Mm-hmm. And we're killing desert animals just so we can eat. And the other side is, is flush. Yeah. Toward the end, they're, they're like fleeing rats. I mean, they're heading for the coast, trying to get to the amphibious ships to pull them out of there. And some, some of course make their passage out, but not as many. It just, becomes a killing ground and finally a surrender ground because they've been whipped. You know, the, the British and the Americans had driven them across the desert and that there wasn't much left. I mean, it was, it was time to pull out, regroup and continue the fight elsewhere. But it took that key period, you know, in early mid-March into the first days of April to really start to turn the tide. And that's where Patton had come in and taken command. So it, it was a, a change of course, a change of the tide from that point. And it didn't end the first week of April or so when, when Patton's pulled out to go back and prepare for the Sicily campaign. But it, the pendulum had shifted. You know, it was in our favor. The Allies were moving forward and it was doing pretty good after the first week of April. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Stephen Moore, author of Patton's Payback, The Battle of El Guitar and General Patton's Rise to Glory. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. So when did the battle take place and why do you think, what's your argument that it's a seminal battle, a watershed battle in the history of World War II in the Western Hemisphere? Well, this was the first big victory for the Americans over German tankers you know, going in against armored forces like that. And you know, Patton came into power uh, March 6th. He had, you know, less than three weeks, a little over two weeks to whip this demoralized army into shape and get them prepared for battle. 
you know, they, they start with the Darby's Rangers making a raid on one of the stations and taking a key post. But the key action really kicked off March 23rd near the village of El Guitar. You've got infantry, you've got artillery, you've got tank destroyers, you've got traditional tanks. You got the full gamut, you know, from the Allies' point of view, from the Americans going in against the Germans and the Italians, uh, superior German Panzer tank forces, ample infantry divisions there. And but the start of it is around March 23rd. Uh, two big battles that day. That that's the big battle, and the Germans roll forward shortly around around dawn, right after daybreak, with their tanks. And a lot of what they engage right off the bat is our smaller pea shooters, if you will, the M3 motor carriages, the, the tank destroyers. You know, they're good to stop some bullets from a few hundred yards away. But once you start pulling out the, you know, the big brass and firing the big shells, they're going to crumble like a tin can. Now, the little boys, you know, stood up and fought valiantly. Herschel Baker's 601st uh, Tank Destroyer Battalion, very notable in fact, I follow some of the guys uh, through their diary and some of their recollections. They knocked out a number of those tanks during the morning hours. We suffered quite a lot. A lot of our tank destroyers were knocked out. Men were forced to pull the casualties with them, fall back or go to another ridge. But this goes on until around midday when there's a, a hiatus in the battle. Uh, the Germans you know, bring in their air crews and do some bombing and kind of regroup and reassess. And we learned through a captured prisoner that they're going to push forward late afternoon with a second offensive, which they do. But this time on the afternoon of the 23rd of March, the Americans are well positioned. The infantry is ready. Our troops are not overrun. They don't overrun the artillery this time. And some of them said it was literally like mowing hay. They're just machine guns, big guns, artillery just cutting down the infantry as the German panzer grenaders sweep forward until finally around dusk, you know, the Germans are forced to fall back and regroup. So that was a you know pretty decisive victory. We did lose a lot of uh, tank destroyers and tanks on that day, but we knocked out more Germans than they knocked out of ours. So very much a tactical victory for Patton that first day and the first step in what would become several weeks of warfare in and about the mountains in the desert area, not too far from El Guitar. Is it, is it accurate to say, <laughs> as I as I kind of think in my own mind, that that's the biggest engagement Patton had commanded up to that time? Yeah, absolutely. He was among the generals that went ashore uh, Casablanca, in North Africa, in November. There was fighting, certainly. You know, some of the key points, but uh, Patton's group was quick to take over some key positions there, and he. You know, helped go in and, and negotiate some of the uh, the peace there in that area. But that fighting was, uh, I'd say, a little more minor in comparison to what we start getting into February and March of 43. So for him, it was certainly his biggest engagement, his biggest test as a commanding general of a significant force such as the U.S. Army II Corps. And this is the battle that is depicted in the movie Patton, the desert battle, correct? Or am I wrong? I, I believe that's true. I'd have to go back and look at that again. It's been a few years since I've seen the movie, but that was a key point where he's in the desert, North Africa. That, that's going to be the March, late March 43 time period. And that's his famous rise to command and his, his first time to really step in and take his fiery leadership to the test with his troops. 
Hatton had some pretty amazing subordinates in North Africa with him. Take us through, you mentioned them, several of them in your book. Uh, some of the names are uh, more well-known than others, uh, but talk us a little bit, please. His staff, his subordinates were top-notch, to say the least. Yeah, of course, you eventually have the, the reins handed over to Omar Bradley. Uh, you know, those two got along pretty well. He thought highly of him. But you've got some pretty senior guys heading up the different divisions, such as uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, you know, Roosevelt's uh, one of the, the key commanders of the, the first division there. Big, booming voice and kind of already a hero in his own right. But he's well-respected by his men. Looks uh, just like his dad, too. The pictures of him are just unbelievable. Absolutely. And, you know, hobbling around with his, his cane out there from his you know previous injuries, but always inspiring to his men. But, you know, even even the, you know, the geniuses or the good men he had under his command, Patton wasn't afraid to call them out or even question them. You know, when there was some air raids going on during his first week or two of touring the front lines, he looked at where some of these generals like Roosevelt and them had dug slit trenches to dive into and the bombardment started. He famously walks over and unzips and urinates in the trench and tells the generals, go ahead and use your trench now. Jump in there. And it, it was embarrassing to the <laughs> troops around him, but he's making his point. You know, <laughs> It's like this. And, and I don't mean to drone on the movie, but it's like the scene in the movie, which I didn't know actually happened until not that long ago. But the scene in the movie where George C. Scott is arguing with the British air commander that that he's getting strafed and there's German planes all over North Africa and the British commander, the air commander, I don't know if it was Tedder or whoever it was, uh, said, you know, we have complete control of the of the sky everywhere in in North Africa. And at that moment, the Germans, a German airplane strafes Patton's headquarters. That actually happened actually happened and yeah leading up to that uh, there'd been a couple incidents as you mentioned with lack of good air cover and there was a pretty you know damning response sent that made it up all the way to the highest levels even to the pentagon where you know the british didn't like the way Patton spoke to them and you know basically he came back and said you, know, you would not speak to troops this way it, it got into a pretty heated debate back and forth politically through the upper brass and through the chains to where Patton was making some noise. But yeah, the climax of that was when they came in and strafed the headquarters where Cunningham and Tedder and some of the, the higher ranking, you know, air crew officials from the British are there with Patton and they're strafing and bombing the area. And of course, Patton runs out with his famous cold pistols and firing back at the planes. And they said, well, how did you arrange that to happen on cue like that? And he basically said, I'm summing it up. I don't know, but if I could find that SOB, I'd give the guy a medal, you know? That's the interesting is that, that that's what's in the movie and that actually happened. And that's Patton's line as, the, as, as recorded multiple times that I don't know, but if I could find the SOBs flying those pl German SOBs flying those planes, I give him each a medal. Absolutely. Very true. Uh, he was, like I said, pretty profane. And if there's some words you've heard, he said them and he said them to anybody he chose to say them to. But that was a classic <laughs> patent move. I'd, I'd find that SOB and mail him a medal. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I guess we should say he also actually decorated the uh, chaplain who did the weather prayer as their the third army is trying to relieve uh, Bastogne. I had heard in some places it was a legion of merit in some places that the, the uh the minister got a bronze star, but either way, I think it's, it's, it's funny how the movie actually leans on so much. That is, that is true. One of the things I wanted to ask you particularly about the battle and the campaign is there's a lot, there's some mention of the Italians in the Italian army. And in some ways the Italians are, they start out more, certainly more active in Africa, whether it's the invasion of Ethiopia by Mussolini, which I think maybe was 35. That may I'm, I'm guessing I think that's maybe pretty close. Uh, but in a lot of ways, the, the Germans are somewhat drawn and you correct me into Africa because of of dictator Mussolini's constant search for Caesaresque glory. Uh, how did the Italians perform in North Africa, where they had a long colonial history, and did the fact that the Germans had to come down there cause friction between their ally and them? Yeah, certainly by the time you get to where Patton's taking command, you know, in, in this late spring of 43, it's more of the Germans running the show, but of course, they're, you know, reporting to the Italians along the way. But as far as the forces our guys encountered, from what I looked at or what I saw, they weren't getting as much stiff resistance from the Italians at that point. Uh, when Darby's Rangers overran one of the stations, they had a pretty good fight and, and killed a number of men and captured others. But in one of their second famous raids, mainly Italian troops, they ended up, you know, they killed some, but they surrendered by the dozens and dozens until they had hundreds of Italians that simply gave up. And I think by a certain point, you're looking at some demoralized men it's not going well. You know, the, the German leadership is kind of splintering toward the tail end of the campaign. And I think some of the Italian troops have lost some of their vigor, some of their fire by that point. Your book is very much in, in the later tradition of, of historiography when it comes to personal accounts. I have one particular person I'm going to mention to you if you don't mention him. But how important was it to you? You talked about it just a few minutes ago and and whether it's you know Stephen Ambrose, but but others did it. A lot of Civil War scholarship uh, involved uh, the letters of the soldiers. How important was it to you to interweave the discussion of the battle and the campaign with the firsthand accounts and interviews of the people who are actually there? That's always been uh, a passion of mine in writing history. You know, I'll admit as a kid growing up and going through the basic history courses, I wasn't too excited about it. You know, I found most of it to be kind of boring, frankly, back in the day, as probably a lot of high schoolers did or, you know, college kids did. But when you find the right style, in my case, it was a former advertising guy that that's been my career, advertising and marketing, a guy named Walter Lord. Uh, Walter Lord wrote a lot of famous books like Incredible Victory about Midway, Day of Infamy about Pearl Harbor. He did the Titanic. He did a number of other books. And I think I had to read one of those, probably Day of Infamy or whatever. But as I got into it, I'm like, this is actually pretty interesting because every page is a Japanese aviator. It's an American civilian in Pearl Harbor. It's a guy down on the bowels of the battleship as the, the ship is being blown apart 
struggling to get to the surface. It's it's less of the 30 pages of tactics and Washington and the military going back and forth, but Clausewitz and <laughs> yes. So for me, that's always been a focus of mine in books is getting down to finding interesting people. Not to say every guy in the army wasn't interesting, but some of the experiences are almost unbelievable. Now, I've had stories told to me where I'll go back and dig in and actually find, yeah, this guy did return back shot that night. There's the pharmacist records of treating that guy. And his buddy said it was all a bunch of BS, but mm-hmm. I proved that it happened. That guy was right. So sometimes fact is, is better than fiction, you know? We had an example of that. I actually talked to the authors of a book on the subject, but but I was lucky enough to be a, an acquaintance, a very respectful and, and I would say uh, in awe acquaintance of a man named James O'Donnell. And James O'Donnell was a survivor of the USS Indianapolis who lived in my neighborhood. And he was so intimidating that my brother, who had the Mr. O'Donnell on his paper route, was too scared to go and collect the actual charge for the paper. <laughs> and, you know, there's was a lot done about the USS Indianapolis, especially since the movie Jaws obviously made it made it so much more prevalent in popular culture. But listening to them tell their stories I mean, the USS Indianapolis is a particularly is a significant and sort of like sui generis tragedy. But as you're sitting down and talking to these survivors and there couldn't have been that many. I mean, these World War Two people are in their 90s, at least by now. Did any particular story stand out to you? Any particular uh, act of heroism? Because there were a lot of, of medals for bravery given out. Well, yeah, a couple of different ways I could go with this. You know, one of them, you talk about the veterans, as you said, there are not many left. I, I really had to dig to find guys. Uh, I found an artillery man. He was 100. I uh, turned out he lived almost to be 102, just passed away recently. And his wife still talks to me. But I went out to North Carolina and met Hubert Edwards. Uh, He's Hubert. the guy. He's the yep. guy I was going to ask you about. Go ahead. Yeah. Hubert grew up on a tobacco farm as, as a you know farm boy and all that. And uh he, you know, gets into the army, gets into the artillery, and he's typical of a lot of the guys that encountered Patton. You know, he said, basically, I didn't care a thing about that guy in the world, but he had a way to command men and, and you know, uh, proved to be a good fighter. He had a, a couple of famous uh, encounters, and I mentioned one of them later in the book where he's making some coffee and he has a couple of the, the generals encounter him and, and they ask him, you think we're going to win the war? And he basically says, nope. And they look at him and said, what the hell do you mean? And he said, sir, I don't think we're going to win the war. I know we're going to win the war. So Hubert always had a way to be very blunt to the point. Called the nicest guy you'd ever meet, kind of small in stature. But man, he could talk. And if he had an opinion, he would tell you. And he would tell a general to his face what he thought. And consequences be damned if the general didn't like it. But in his case, the general said, that's the best answer I've heard all day, son. You know, and what was the name of that general? That was uh, he said that was Patton. But I think he had a couple of different ones. I have to go back um, in your book. It's in your book. It's Eisenhower. Yes, it's Eisenhower. That's it. He mentioned Patton and Eisenhower, but I believe it was Patton and Ike the way he told me. You get a, a year or so beyond the book. I got to go back and scratch my head and think about which story was which, you know. 
Well, tell us about some of the other ones. Talk about some of the, the the folks who who this was their real. You know, we we in the the movies. You know, obviously, Saving Private Ryan stands out for the way it portrays D Day in Omaha Beach, but to a point that we were just discussing a few minutes ago. These are these farm boys and city boys and and teachers and dock workers and 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 planters and firefighters or whoever they their occupation were or a lot of them were just coming out of high school. This is their first taste of real combat, actual combat. Uh, the ones who weren't at Kazarine Pass. Uh, how did they describe it being yeah. in it? Because they'd obviously seen war movies, right, and had followed World War II, you know, uh, and read about Pearl Harbor. But this is a whole different enterprise. Yeah, as you know, you probably heard from a lot of veterans, and most of them don't think much of war movies and how it's portrayed and what Hollywood does to it. Now, guys I talked to that actually saw uh, Saving Private Ryan, the opening scenes where he's got them going ashore at Normandy, the sounds, the experiences, the jerky camera and all that, they said that was some pretty good stuff as far as Hollywood realism, but a lot of it's not so. Uh, To answer your question, another guy, uh, Harley Reynolds, he's... uh, just an 18-year-old kid from a small Virginia coal mining town. Got to interview him. He goes in and just, it, it's a war of attrition. He, he loses a couple of his good friends along the campaign. You know, he's, he's lowly man in his platoon one minute. Next minute, he's up to being a gunner. And just slowly, these men get elevated along the way. Probably the more interesting one, I, I did not get to interview him personally, but I got a hold of a lot of his papers, was uh, Les Ness of the Rangers. He started out a sergeant, made it several of the famous raids. In fact, was one of the only handful of guys to make all the raids, uh, including going ashore and making the commando raid with the British and and the uh, Canadians. Excuse me. But he is given a battlefield promotion after the Sened Station raid. So they go in and they pass out. I think it was 14 different silver stars to Darby and a number of the men. But Ness is promoted to second lieutenant, second lieutenant, one of four guys to get a battlefield promotion with the Rangers. This is in uh, mid-February. Fast forward two or three weeks later, Fredendahl, who you know was there to pin the medals on the Rangers, he's been removed. You've got Patton in charge. He comes in, you know, blood and guts and all that. And he's, he's saying, you're going to wear neckties. You're going to wear leggings. You're going to wear steel helmets in the desert. These guys haven't been wearing that. If you're old enough to shave, you're going to put a razor in your face. You're going to shave. And men that are not without the, without the leggings, without the neckties, you're going to get 10 bucks for this, 15 bucks for that, $25 in fees. Well, the Rangers are preparing for a raid. Ness and his men, to make a long story short, are encountered by one of Patton's subordinates, uh, Gaffey. And what are you doing out of uniform? What are you doing wearing skull caps and not wearing, you know, your steel helmets? Where's your ties? And a couple of guys are pretty smart alecky with him to make the story short. They are marched back to Patton's command headquarters so that Ness and his men can get a dressing down from Patton on insubordination, improper dress, the fines they're going to get. And by the end of this meeting, Patton is beating his fist on the table, red in the face, squeaky voice, screaming at Lieutenant Ness, how dare you? You don't rescind my orders. You will do as you're told. 
and threatens to send him back stateside. And according to Ness, he said, fine with me. I'm happy to get out of this damn desert and go back stateside. <laughs> that was his first encounter with Patton. And he probably didn't have a big opinion of the Rangers first off. But as I show in the book, he has good reason to appreciate those men later. That was why, one of my favorite characters, I'd say, in the book. And, and why? I mean, besides just their bravery, obviously, why were the Rangers a particular focus of your writing and research? Well, I've done another book um, on Army Rangers and Green Berets. Uh, those kind of men in Vietnam and what they did and what they accomplished. But you go back to World War II. These, this is the precursor to all the modern Rangers and Navy SEALs and all the things we have today, all these, these brave men and women that serve. Uh, Darby's Rangers were formed, you know, pulled from largely infantry and other military specialties strictly as volunteers. They had to pass rigorous physical and mental tests to make the cut. And Les Ness, the guy I mentioned, his brother made the cut. Mike made it. Les didn't make the cut. He didn't make the first 500 on Darby's Ranger lists. Only through a little sleight of hand, his, his brother Mike did some of the clerical work, typed in his brother's number and name, and put him <laughs> on one of the rosters. And in the midst of all these men being interviewed and weeded out, both Ness brothers made it through and stayed with the Rangers. And if it was ever found out, they, they did a pretty good job of covering their tracks. But uh, he proved himself. I mean, they trained in Scotland, trained in England, you know, from rolling logs, carrying logs, to swimming, to amphibious uh, landings, to you know, crawling through barbed wire, just all the typical Hollywood scenes you'd see, full packs running through the desert with one canteen of water, climbing mountains, doing this in the dark, you know, rope lines up and down cliffs. These, these are some tough guys in tough situations. And, I mean, look at where we are today because of men like that. Well, that's that's a great point. How how it all kind of started there. Um, were they seen as elite by other units? And, and I'm sure they got I'm sure they got made fun of because that's just what you do in the army. It doesn't matter. You get made fun of no matter how brave you are and what your rank is. At least when when the ranks are close to each other. Uh, but were they seen as elite by others? I think they earned, you know, their recognition over time, you know, certainly in North Africa, Sicily, and on through the campaigns as we get into Normandy and everywhere else. I mean, these guys went in and did the bad stuff. I mean, they're hiking 20 miles through the desert in the darkness to sneak up on an enemy outpost, badly outnumbered, and, and try to kill or capture all those men. Word got around. I mean, the Italians that were overcome by Darby's men called them Black Death these guys with painted black faces coming out of the darkness, assaulting a superior force and, and winning the battle in short order. It was just new tactics, but I think they earned their respect. But yeah, they probably got poked fun of just like any other military <laughs> unit does with other guys. <laughs> you know, in talking with, we have, we have a few more minutes uh, with Stephen Moore uh, before we ask him the five questions. Uh, my great uncle drove a i would think it would be a higgins boat um, seven amphibious landings in the pacific including okinawa and you know when i was a kid we were just so in awe of and we did we didn't really talk about it but as i got older and he got older uh, we would he would chat about it you know i had more of a frame of reference you know i was 
I think I was out of graduate school by the time or whatever. And we would talk about it and I would ask him about movies or books or, or whatever. And I want to ask you, I want to see if you ask the same question of him, excuse me, of your survivors that I asked of him. And I asked him kind of, what do they get right? The people who make the movies or do the documentaries or write the books. And, and his name was George Murray, uncle George. And he said, they, they get almost everything right, but there's one thing they can never get right through no fault of their own. The one thing they can't replicate. And I said, really, what's that? And he said, the smell. He yeah. said, the smell coming off these islands, he goes, you just can't imagine what it was, what it, how awful it is. And it, and, and it's the smell of death. In talking with with your survivors, was there any particular part of their battle experience or combat experience that you could tell affected them more than others? Maybe the smell, maybe the noise, maybe seeing the, their friends, a guy they just probably laughed and joked with or played poker the night before, all of a sudden get shot. Was there anything that particularly affected them, brought the memories flowing back? Yeah, you know, this book and other books I've done with World War II veterans or Vietnam veterans, it, it's tough. Like you said, the smell of decaying bodies that are, they, they have no way to move them in the heat of battle, in the heat of a campaign. And, and it's hard to put that in a book. You certainly can't put that in a movie. But then it's the experience, like you said, of the guy beside you sharing a cigarette one minute, the next minute, all of a sudden he's got a bullet right between the eyes and slumps over in your lap or a Japanese soldiers stormed your foxhole in Okinawa and jumped in there and it's hand to hand death with a knife. And one guy makes it, one guy doesn't. And there's that sometimes survivors remorse, you know, why did I live? And this guy died. And as they're telling the story, some of them can keep the poker face and go through it. Others I've had just break down and, you know, weep like a child as they recount the loss of their best buddies or, even taking another man's life, you know, hand to hand. It, it's not as stoic as you see in Hollywood. Uh, it, it stays with them. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, they don't forget it a year later. They don't forget it 50 years later. It, it stays with them until their death. And I've had many of them talk about their wives shaking them awake at night because they're swinging and punching and kicking and screaming and having these, these terrible nightmares, you know, especially POWs I've interviewed. Uh, there, there's things you struggle to put in a movie or a book, but uh, every veteran that's been through anything like that, they, they have things they live with. My uh, uncle-in-law's Green Beret received a number of awards and going to these reunions and seeing the guys sitting around drinking their beers, telling their stories that they're great, they're fun, they've become professionals, but they'd tell me to the side, we look okay. But inside, every one of us is really screwed up in a lot of ways that you don't see. So I, I, that means something to me to hear a guy say that. Yeah, that's 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 terrific for you to recount that. Uh, one of the guests on the Leaders and Legends podcast, uh, we had just when we first started the podcast, when Chris Spangle and I did a couple of years ago, was Medal of Honor recipient Sammy Davis, who is the inspiration for Forrest Gump. And actually is in the movie uh, Forrest Gump. It's just uh, Tam Tom Hanks face over his body as uh, President Johnson awards the 
the Medal of Honor to him for something that is just so incredibly heroic that it's hard to process uh, what uh, Sammy did. And I asked him about that, you know, and, and it's interesting that combat for a lot of these folks, a lot of these, since we're speaking World War II, we'll say men, um, was a business in the sense that they had a job to do as soldiers and they looked at it that way. Did that mentality, was that something that you also encountered? And it's like, I was sent over there to do a job and I didn't start the war, but it's him or me and it's not going to be me. Yeah. And, and a lot of guys you talk to the veterans, they have to depersonalize it to a certain degree. If I don't kill this guy, he's going to kill me or he killed my buddies last night. I'm going to kill him. And yeah, it is my job. And, and that's, they have to face it. They have to put aside reality when they're in the moment and they're over there in that campaign. But when they get back home or they, you know, get to R and R or 30 years later, that stuff's in their mind and the way they dealt with it that day, it's not as easily dealt with down the road. And, and, you know, many years later, we've learned about, you know, all the post-traumatic disorders and things that veterans suffer from that we didn't know back in those days, but it's real. And you deal with it in the moment as best you can, but it doesn't leave you. We Hoosiers are a proud people here in Indiana. We may not, we may not be as proud as the Texans, but we're, we're a proud group of folks. Ernie Pyle is a revered figure in this state, especially uh, at Indiana University. And what he did in his bravery as, as, a, as a journalist, as a commentator during World War II, uh, talk, to, talk to the Leaders and Legends podcast audience a little bit about Ernie Pyle. Yeah, I've had Ernie Pyle pop up in a couple of my books. I did uh, Reign of Steel the other year about the, the fighter pilots in the Okinawa campaign, the kamikazes, and then some of what was going on ashore. And of course, you know, Ernie Pyle doesn't survive that campaign. But uh, long before that, he's in North Africa and he's up there interviewing the legends, the generals, you know, elbow to elbow with these guys on the front lines. And he's well thought of by the men because he's he's just like one of the boys, you know, sitting on the back of the tank, smoking a cigarette, you know, with his notepad, taking notes. But the American public back home just devoured his columns. I mean, he's out there telling them what was going on, what little Jimmy Smith from Connecticut was doing on that battle. And, and interesting that you bring that up. I, I touch on this in the book toward the tail end of all the generals he talked about and wrote about. There's one whose name he'd never put in print in any of his columns. That would be Mr. George Patton. Ernie did not think much of Patton, did not like his style. You know, maybe there was a little brush that he didn't document somewhere, but he didn't put him in print. So you can leave it at that, what Ernie thought about George Patton. (laughs) You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is author Stephen Moore. He has just written and published a book, Patton's Payback, the Battle of El Guitar and General Patton's Rise to Glory. It's a terrific account of the North African campaign and, and how American troops, the baptism of fire, it's somewhat of a cliche, but it's certainly valid here. Stephen, are you ready for the five questions that we ask of all of our guests? I promise they're harmless. 
Sounds good. I, I will have to admit I have not listened to what they are, so I, I may have to do a pass, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> oh, tr- oh, trust me, you'll get it. You're all the grades are A pluses. There are no wrong answers. <laughs> what was your first job? Oh, let's see. It was a restaurant. I was busboy and dishwasher and worked my way up to cook and cashier and all that good stuff. I started working before I could drive. My parents had to drop me off. And then they finally said, you drive the back streets quietly and don't get pulled over. We're tired of picking you up at two in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I do miss Whataburger from my time being stationed in uh, El Paso for sure. Second question. What was your first concert? Man, that's a tough one. You know, I, I did quite a few of them back in the day. Uh, it might have been Chicago or Van Halen or something along those lines. I'd have to look at ticket stubs, to be honest. <laughs> Van Halen was my first concert in El Paso when they uh, toured in 1988. Uh, number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? And that's a tough one. I have to look back at that. Um you know, if somebody was wanting to, I'm just going to go back to what inspired me. I would say Walter Lord. I would pick up Incredible Victory or Day of Infamy. It's old, but it stands the test of time. And his books have remained in print for decade after decade because he would interview hundreds and hundreds of people to get his stories. And you can't beat that. I mean, you, you can't beat that kind of research. You know, He's a terrific, terrific writer. Number four, this is probably the hardest question for historians. So I apologize in advance. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Man, that is a tough one. Uh, for me, I've always you know, been inspired by some of the campaigns in the Pacific and all that. I'd, I'd love to go back and be on a carrier at the Battle of Midway or the Battle of Coral Sea, one of those first battles, and, and go through that and, and just you know see... I'm, I'm an ocean guy. I like my scuba diving. I like the water. So I've done a lot of Navy books. That'd be my first answer, I'd say. I think, you know, we had, I'm sure you're familiar with Craig Simons. Yes. He's been on our podcast. And I think that was, it may have been his answer as well. Just the, that beginning of, of World War II and the bravery and, and how the tide turned. Yeah, I've, I've done a couple books, Specific Payback. And then I had a recent one here that just came out called Battle Stations about the Courier Yorktown at the Battle of Midway. And the, got to interview the last guys living from the carrier Yorktown and the stories that were there. I just, uh, my dad served on a carrier as a Marine, ironically. So I've always kind of had a pension for, you know, the, the military that fought those early carrier battles, you know. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Man, that's a really good question. Um, I have to think about that for a minute. Yeah, I kind of want to go to a president or or somebody in a high up position like that. But I'm probably going to be stumped on that one. That's one I'd have to really ponder. Um, You know, maybe one of our military leaders, you know, if I could spend a couple hours with the general and really pick his brains and talk about what the past meant to what he's doing today. You know, have we learned from it? But or you know, things we're digging up and recounting today, does that mean anything to the modern guys? Uh, that's a that's a great question. That's a tough one. <laughs> Leave me most on people, the, the most popular answer is Barack Obama. Yeah. And the second most popular answer is George W. Bush. 
Yeah, I, Bush means a lot to me as a Texan. Uh, if his father was still living, that would be my first answer. Uh, being a naval aviator, I've done a lot of books on submarines and him being rescued by a submarine. Uh, I, uh, some of the squadron guys did a model of the Avenger Bush flu and took it to the White House and presented it to him. And I actually sent him a copy of the book we did on the buzzer brigade back in the day that supposedly made it to the White House. I don't know, but I would have loved to have spoken with him if I could. But yeah, his son would be a good interview also. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We love you and we miss you, P.E. Our guest has been Stephen Moore, author of Patton's Payback, The Battle of El Guitar and General Patton's Rise to Glory. Mr. Moore, thank you so much for your time. I very much enjoyed the discussion. It's, it's a delightful book. I love how you're chronicling these histories. They need to be told. Um, we should all be very grateful for your efforts. Well, thanks so much, Robert and Chris, for what you're doing in the background. We appreciate you. Uh, pleasure to be on here. Keep doing what you're doing. I know the veterans enjoy it. I know the general public enjoys what you're doing. Hats off to you guys. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. 